Hey, how are you? I'm so glad you're here with me today. Well, I want to give some disclosure about this episode. Now, the title kind of speaks for itself. Um, The episode is being split into two segments. So this is part one, and then part two will be released next week, next Sunday. And there was just so much information that needed to be shared. And I am so thankful for Rob coming on here and being able to share his journey and his story because it's, to me, it sounds like a movie. It's, it's pretty incredible and pretty intense at times. And so I do want to give that warning that there can be some content that's sensitive to some listeners, um, some graphic explanation of things. So I just want to uh, give that warning for people. On the other aspect here is that it can be very relatable. It can be relatable for you whether you are or have been dealing with addiction um, or you know somebody who has or is dealing with addiction. And the cool thing here is that we are going to be providing resources whether you are the person struggling with addiction or know somebody who is struggling with addiction. And, you know, the main message here is knowing that you can't change somebody who doesn't want to change. And so the word that we're really emphasizing in here that Rob talks about and brings up is self-empowerment. And that's what saved him. Um, That's what got him out of the darkness and into the light. And it is possible. Obviously, he demonstrates that. And he's not the only one. I've heard incredible stories from other people who have been able to find the light out of the darkness all about um, focusing on that self-empowerment so it can be done Um, and so there is always hope and so just just know that there's always hope but a person has to want the change and again an incredible journey an incredible story and there will be resources provided in the episode and the link tree for you all right so about rob so rob snyder not the actor but still pretty cool guy (laughs) um He is now a certified alcohol and drug counselor out of Oregon and a registered alcohol and drug tech out of California. He is a DBT and mindfulness group facilitator. His official title is clinical addictions counselor. Well, without further ado, here we go. All right. Thanks, Rob, for joining me today. I'm really, really excited for this episode and the topic that we're going to be hashing out today. Thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. So let's just delve into this. Uh, I usually like to kind of go back and get to know the person you used to be. So tell me about your childhood. Like, what was your upbringing like? Um. So, um, for a little context, I was. I'm adopted. I was adopted at age three. Um, I was born addicted to heroin. I was in the incubator and on uh, methadone treatments. I don't know much about my biological family. I know my biological mother passed away due to her addiction, as did my aunt. Um, I know I have various siblings out there who I have not met. Um, Mm. And a nephew who I actually just recently met through Ancestry.com, thanks to my wife, who reached out to him on Facebook. and he actually is the one that told me about my mother and his mother. Um, and that's that. I was in an orphanage in Chicago till right around three years old, um, where I was adopted by the bio, by the adopted parents I have now, who are wonderful parents. Um, my dad has a doctorate degree. He teaches advanced calculus. My mother does something with finances. Um, I was their first child. Um, I think they were solely unprepared for for me. No, no. Um, yeah, I. They weren't. You know, they had great intentions. That you know, they wanted to rescue this child who you know had this really rough start and had some. I had some cognitive. Um, dysfunction when I was a baby, you know, just like little issues and stuff. And they really wanted to help and they adopted me and they fell in love with me. And I was a handful. I I was a real handful. Um, I had a lot of issues growing up with adjusting um, 
little things like my parents, my dad would like move furniture around the house or change things. And I couldn't, I, I would have like panic attacks and um, I just couldn't deal with change. Change was really hard for me. I really needed something really structured and the same. And I think a lot of that stemmed just from the three years that I was in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. Um, as I got older, I started having a lot of behavioral issues. I was um, diagnosed with ADHD um, and a few other things, which I don't recall at the time. My grade school, I did really well. I got really great grades, but my I was always acting out, always um, wanting attention. Um, I wouldn't say temper tantrums, but temper tantrums. You know, I, I you know I, I wasn't easy to manage. And that progressed into my junior high age where now I started also having an identity crisis. I didn't really know where I fit in. I didn't do my homework. I got really bad grades. Um, so I wasn't really accepted in kind of the class of people that my parents associated with, but I was readily acceptable by this other crowd. Um, so I started getting involved with gangs and um, I think my first introduction to drugs and alcohol was probably, I want to say seventh grade. Um, I skipped school and hung out with a bunch of kids. I got really drunk and I remember waking up in the neighborhood of my school, but in some random person's garage, like early in the morning. That was one of my first outs with alcohol. Um, blackout drunk and passed out. And um, Of course, all my friends just thought this was the coolest. Um, or at least I thought they thought it was the coolest. So that was the kind of energy I put into my life at that time. Like I am just going to, they think it's really cool that I get really drunk and I'm crazy and all this kind of stuff. We're going to, we're going to do that because I'm excelling at this. Yeah. Um, I'm so not excelling at the other still stuff. Like an, a, an intention seeking behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And um, so you feel like you've been afflicted with mental health issues from a very young age, a very young age. Right. I think I would call it more behavioral issues. Behavioral. Um, some of it stemming from, you know, just whatever trauma I went through as a baby mm-hmm. and, you know, my adoption and then just this, desire to fit in somewhere. I didn't really know where I fit in. Um, The places I was expected to fit in, I didn't fit in. Um, So I kind of fit into the places that I knew like, okay, my behavior is already bad and these kids are bad. These are the ones I'm going to hang out with. And that's, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, when you get into your older, like teenage years and stuff, I think, you know, a lot of teenagers have like identity crisis, but it's, I think it's probably a little bit different magnified for you. Um, coming from the place that you did, you have like this epigenetic trauma, you have, um, you know, you've been adopted and you're just not quite fitting the mold that you want to fit and not getting the attention that you're wanting there either. So you were trying to find it in other places and it led to alcohol, right? Alcohol and drugs. And I mean, th- those weren't really the issues and it was more just my need to fit in and my behavior, okay. but those were precursors to the addictions that I would fall into later on. Okay. And so you started with alcohol and that led into what? Like- alcohol, um, alcohol, marijuana. Um, I did PCP a couple times. Um, they probably had some pretty early examples of cocaine usage. And that was pretty much it until I got older. That was at around 15 or 16, I came home drunk one night, hanging with my friends, and I was trying to get in the house, and neighbor called the cops, and the cops showed up, and, you know, here I am, this rebellious teenager who thought he was, and I was drunk. Um, I tried to fight the cops who, they thought I was breaking into the house, and I wasn't, you know, it was my house. So I, I tried to fight them, they pulled a gun on me, I kicked one of them really hard and, and then fought with the other one and ended up going to juvenile jail. Um, so I got charged with aggravated battery and assault on a cop. I went to juvenile jail, which is pretty much where I spent the entirety of my teenage years. Um, from 
14 to 19. Do you feel like that benefited you at all? Absolutely not. Okay. So <laughs> looking back on it now, I, I, you know, one, here I am with hardened criminals. I, I mean, I was, so I was sentenced to juvenile department of corrections and like right off the bat, I think my, the first year was me trying to prove I was as tough as everybody, which I wasn't. Um, the second year was finding my place. And the third year was, um, I don't know, I'm still finding my place, but I think one of the negative consequences of this is I didn't get to develop like other teenagers. Um, my entire teenage years were spent, you know, not when other kids are fixing cars and going on dates and going to football games and stuff like that. I'm in a constant flight or flight response. Um, I watched people get stabbed. I watched people get raped. I had my jaw, my, no my nose broken the first year I was there. Um, so it, it was it was a dangerous place for me and okay so this is all stuff that you witnessed and experienced in juvenile hall. yes yes wow wow um so you know i i didn't really have i think a lot of it has to do with my brain development too because i didn't get that same development and those same experiences and everything that other teenagers or other you know preteens and, and teens and young adults experience which then shapes the way they think and the way they go about their future um i got out of there i, I got paroled in 93 i think it was i got paroled and within a month and a half i committed a rash of or a string of burglaries with a bunch of friends and now i was facing my first adult case which i was sentenced to prison for that oh my gosh so in this this duration of everything that's that's you know, been going on, you go into juvenile hall, getting in trouble, getting in the gangs and all that. What were your um, adopted parents like? How are, how are they handling this? What are they doing? Like, what's. They were supportive um, as much as they could be. I mean, they were also very disappointed. They were very embarrassed because I am the only son and they're crowded people who this has happened to um so it was very embarrassing for them did they know your background i mean I, yes I yes they knew your background so they knew that they were probably going to get a handful right yes yes okay, okay. <laughs> but they just weren't quite prepared i don't i don't think knowing being told and kind of knowing a little bit that this might be a handful and actually what i gave them were two different things yeah. You can't so, prepare necessarily for something. No, like you can't. That. I mean, you can't prepare for parenthood, normal parenthood, but no. you know. <laughs> that's true. And then here you come. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, and now you said you, you went on to experience an adult charge. What happened there? How did that play out? Um, so I, I was sentenced to four years in adult department of corrections in Illinois and I found that to be a much nicer experience than I did the juvenile. Really? Um, yeah, they're, they're adults. Yeah. They don't have as much to prove. Most of them are just trying to do their time and get out. Um, it's not a bunch of young gang kids doing gang things. It's, yeah. um, it's adults. So that kind of that time just went by pretty smoothly. I got out. Um, and I had met a girl shortly before I got in there. She stuck with me the whole time I was there and we ended up having two children together. And we were together for almost 15 years after I got out. Um, however, when I got out, I was drinking very heavily. Um, I was, <laughs> I was not a good partner. Um, I was verbally abusive. Um, I would break things, you know, when I got, when I drank, um emotionally abusive i wasn't i wasn't a good parent whatsoever because i'm doing this in front of my kids um, i had trouble holding down jobs unless they were jobs with people like me um, who drank a lot um, and i was in and out of jail usually for alcohol related crimes i got a couple duis during that time um, so you were still trying to figure out how to fit in this whole time 
think so. I, you know, I, I think a lot of that still had to do with fitting in. And a lot of it also had to do with the anger of, you know, there was a lot of anger that I had a, towards myself and a lot of judgment. And I hated myself at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I absolutely hated myself and I hated the way I behaved. I hated the way I treated people. I hated where I was in life. I hated the position I wasn't that I had in life. Yeah. That it sense. probably just felt painful to come to that terms with that it probably was painful and so you just kept medicating absolutely yeah fast forward let's see and at some point um my partner and i broke up um i met another girl whose family were cocaine dealers and i really only dated her because her family were cocaine dealers like oh, okay you know that was kind of the little the intrigue of that and everything and so I started getting involved with that with them um she ended up getting pregnant and most of her family well her other side of her family all lived in LA Riverside area and she wanted to go to LA and so that's what we did we went out to California we actually moved to Moreno Valley and um her, her relationship didn't work out um, she had a lot of mental health issues mm -hmm. and I had stopped drinking, um, like California. I mean, alcohol is not as cool in California. So okay, I was going to ask you, like, yeah. why, why did you stop? Oh, okay. Okay. I think a lot of just kind of my, my mindset changed, you know, I, I was no longer in the Midwest. Um, people kind of live healthier lifestyles and just, uh, just, uh, I feel like there's more of a stigma on alkohol unless maybe it's like the craft beer scene. Um, <laughs> the sophisticated drinking. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a triple IPA. <laughs> it tastes like crap, but you're cool. <laughs> so um, I quit drinking, but my youngest son and I's relationship really suffered. Um, she continued to have a lot of mental health issues, and that was kind of towards the end what we're at this stage the two of us are still at the stage where we really just can't stand each other mm -hmm. um we can't co-parent i mean i'm in a position now where i'm open to that but she's not so that's kind of where we're at and she has a lot of i i ended up leaving her and she has a lot of resentment towards that too which has mm -hmm. carried through over the years my son is now um 14 so it's been okay your youngest okay Yes. Um, so my other two kids are grown. So now we've heard a lot about what you've gone through and you quit drinking when you got to California, but what did that mean for the rest of your situation? Like, did you get, were you still continuing other drug use? Nope. Like that? Nope. Nope. Not at the time. Um, I had kind of fully embraced, like I wasn't in recovery. I wasn't anything like that. I had just kind of grown out of drinking and doing that. That's kind of what had happened. And that how remains old, today. How old how, were you then? Um, gosh, I don't remember in my mid twenties, okay. mid, mid, late twenties, late twenties. Okay. You're aging. Yourself. Okay. Gosh, no, it was, no, it was in my early thirties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause my son is 14 now. So it was my early thirties. Okay. Then what, then what? So then I um, ended up moving to Barrio Logan and I would do a little cocaine sometimes on, on the weekends. I get off work, do a little cocaine. I worked in the restaurant industry um, and yeah, say no yeah, more. <laughs> yes. And I also had some neighbors that, you know, did a little cocaine and that was kind of our thing. I also had a lot of neighbors that did meth. Mm -hmm. And to me at the time, kind of the stigma I had against meth was that it was like this trailer park redneck you know, make it in the bathtub type thing. And I just couldn't believe that people were out here were doing it. Yeah. And then one day, I think we we're like in a backyard, me and my next door neighbor and his two cousins came over and we're doing lines of Coke and they're smoking a meth pipe. And they asked me if I wanted to try it. And I'd hundreds of times in the past, I'd said, no, you know, like, I'm, no, bro, that's not for me. This time I did it and I really liked it. And then when I started finding out that it was a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible 
it kind of became a thing. And now suddenly I had a lot of other friends in the neighborhood who I could do this with. I started doing it quite a bit. And now I had something else that I could do with all my other neighbors that, you know, did it all the time. And now suddenly my house had become kind of this hangout. And eventually I started realizing that I could start selling it. I have all the clientele that are here all the time. I can start selling it. So I went through that process. Um, I met a few people, kind of got hooked up with them until eventually I found someone that I was getting really good stuff from and I could actually make money with. And I did that for quite a few years. And in that process, that's where my method addiction really, really, really hit. Um, first year and a half or so, I was just smoking it. On the weekends, you know, every once in a while after work, stuff like that. Um, I was still going to work. I was actually starting to excel in the career that I had. Um, I actually helped open up some really amazing restaurants in mm. San Diego. I worked with some really amazing chefs. Um, I got to be on TV maybe four or five times. Huh. Um, cook on TV. That was a lot of fun. And I, I managed that for a couple of years. Mm. And then... I mean, it was like I, I was getting so in deep with the selling and with everything else that pretty soon that was like kind of taking over my life. I had some friends that shot up and that was kind of in the meth addict world, a regular meth who smoke, a regular meth addict who smokes is held in higher esteem than the meth addict who shoots up. Uh-huh. So we, so I never really was you know I was like I'm, I'm not ever gonna shoot up I'm so much better than that and you never thought you were gonna do it in the first place <laughs> exactly um and you know I like to say I'm a guy who takes risks so <laughs> it was an entirely different feeling an entirely different experience mm. um it started out almost like a it's like a cleaner healthier experience if that mm. makes <laughs> sense I mean it, it, Okay. As much it, sense it, as it could be for somebody who hasn't tried it. So yeah. Yes. And it actually in, in in a way it actually is because you can clean it before you do it. Um you're not I don't know how to explain it, but there it, but it's if more done pure. right, it's a little safer and it's a little pure. Okay. It's but I that just lost me. Like as I was once I started shooting up, it was all over. Okay. Um and eventually I'm the guy with the backpack on and the bike running behind alleys and I was weighing 110 pounds um at the time I'm two for context I'm 225 now okay. um I eventually sold to like a undercover narc or something like that um breaking one of my many rules of not selling to people I don't know and and not leaving my neighborhood to sell um I went to Sherman Heights. I was at somebody's house. Somebody came up and I knew they didn't even belong in the neighborhood because they were asking for somebody that I knew didn't live there. And all the red flags were there and I sold to her. And minutes later, the police rolled up and they charged me with sales of methamphetamine and transportation of methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. So, so I went to jail, wake up call at the time, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I got to be there for my son and this and that. And it started out good when I finally got out of jail. Um, but this wasn't your rock bottom. It sure wasn't. Okay. Nope. All right. Well, <laughs> here we go. So um, I got out, I got out of jail and I had, I had, I still had dope at my house so I wasn't going to let that go to waste so I thought I'm just going to go ahead and do all this right now get it done and then I'm going to start my process of getting clean and everything even though I just had four months clean in jail I didn't want to waste it though in in my mind this is the thought process I was going through my mind was tricking me so I did it and it was over I just I just that was enough to just tell me it's not going to be this time. This isn't going to be the time to get clean. Um, I ended up going on the run for my probation, uh, which I did. Actually, I got away with it for almost three and a half years. Um, staying just under the radar. I don't know how. I actually got pulled over and stopped quite a few times once I got pulled over with 
quarter pound in the car and I told the police I didn't have my license and I just spelled my last name like the John Snyder instead of Rob Snyder and they let me go. Um, so my disease just kept carrying on. Thank you again for being here today and tuning into the Healing Compass podcast. I hope you're finding this episode valuable in some way. If I can reach just one person, my purpose is fulfilled. While I'm not a mental health expert, I am working toward a PhD in biopsychology and neuroscience, and my goal is to bring on others to support my cause. To keep informed and to help support me in return, please subscribe to my podcast and you will be notified of newly released episodes. And I encourage you to share my podcast with others and let them know how it has impacted your life. Also, I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of listening to podcasts with so many sponsored advertisements. I want to avoid becoming one of these podcasts. And so with your support, I can continue bringing you insightful messages and helpful resources for well-being, especially if you are able to donate today. Even if it's just $1, anything can be a thoughtful contribution to keep me going. Just visit my link tree, which is at Healing With Sway. The link is found in the description of this episode and the podcast, and then just click on donate. My link tree also has links to some very helpful resources as well as scientific sources on various therapies, mental health, and human biology neuroscience mentioned in my episodes and beyond. I have prioritized links to crisis lines and websites at the top of my page, so please don't be afraid to reach out if you need help. I want to remind you that most of my guests, whether they work in the San Diego or beyond, allow me to include their information in the episode descriptions so that you may look into them further. Also, be sure to visit my website, healingwithsway.com, for the services I offer and upcoming events that I host both virtually and in the San Diego area. Lastly, I want to hear from you. If you have a question to submit, have a topic suggestion, or would like to be a guest on my podcast, please reach out to me via email. It's healingwithsway, all one word, healingwithsway at outlook.com. All right, let's get back to today's message. Okay, so what, what let's, yeah, because I, I really want to keep talking about this and hearing your journey is just incredible. And I want people to be able to like hear this and relate. And so what do you feel, or I'm sure, you know, was your rock bottom? When did you like say, oh my God, I cannot do this anymore. When did you have that light bulb moment? My rock bottom took place over about two years. Mm -hmm. It was a a bunch of accumulative things. Um, I wanted to quit by then. Um, So this is, we're fast forwarding a few years from there. Um, I had lost my job, like completely. I mean, I had lost lots of jobs, but I, I had some pretty decent, I had a really decent job that I just walked away from. Um, I didn't actually get fired or anything. I just walked away from, like, I, I just, I wasn't there. Um, I got into a really unhealthy relationship, probably the most toxic relationship that I've ever been in. Um, we were both using. Um, I didn't know the extent that she was using, but she, she lived in Encanto and she, had a whole nother group of friends and this kind of opened up some doors for me to start selling dope to them and so i started doing that and now i have extreme i had extremely large quantities of dope all the time i mean for a little 110 pound meth addict who rides a bike um i had a lot of dope and so it never ran out it was just an endless supply my girlfriend at the time of three years she was so she has some very she has some mental health issues too so she already has like a little bit of schizophrenia and some other issues and that compounded with the drugs um Mm -hmm. it was it was a mess um eventually i just ran and i I was like i'm done i can't do this because i was in so much pain every time I'd go over there. I ended up living in a tent. Well, I mean, I actually went for a couple months without a tent. Um, I found, so I used to live in like the San Carlos La Mesa area. And 
during my addiction and just walking around, I found little parts of the neighborhood that I'd never seen before. And I found a great place to put a tent or, you know, at first a, a great place to just stay in the bush. And I started doing that. And I think it was, I don't know, like I became very recluse. I wasn't like other homeless people where like I wanted to hang out downtown and have the safety of a community. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't. It was not like you were trying to fit in anymore. (laughs) No, if anything, I really wanted to just get away from everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, My mental state was not okay. I was, I was a mess. I think, and this is right around where my rock bottom, rock bottom hit. I remember one night sitting in the tent I had a big shot, like a gram shot loaded and sitting in the tent and just crying. And I probably hadn't eaten in like two weeks. Oh. Um, I was remember staring up at the top of my tent, which to me was the sky at the time and just begging God or whoever to just let this be the last shot that I ever take. And if that meant, and, and when I meant by that is I hope I just die. You know, I, I hope yeah. that this is, so such a powerful shot that it just takes me out so you Um, weren't intentionally like planning to do it but if it happened it happened I mean or it was a little bit of both it was like I mean I was doing an copious amount of meth because I mean you knew how much you were taking I knew but I did this little thing all the time where I like pushed it to the next limit and that's kind of where you the chasing the high thing um yeah I've had some where I've known my body has that was way too much for my body like way too much my eyes stop working and I can't see and I'm black and um my heart is lurching and you know I I I survived that one let's try it again Mm -hmm. so I had that mentality a lot and I think that was just kind of my subconscious is not caring anymore so interesting enough that night and I'd done that other nights but not like this this one stuck out in my memory and still does um like I when I it was almost a core memory because I can remember like the walls of the tent I remember the shot being so thick that it was crystallizing in the syringe I remember the tears and my hand shaking so I remember all that and then I survived obviously Mm -hmm. um I don't want to give the spoiler away, but surprise, I made it. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Don't let them know that in this until at the <laughs> very end. Spoiler alert, guys. <laughs> so I made it. And two or three days later, I get this interesting message on Facebook. Um, it's from a friend who owns an oyster bar here in Portland, where I now live. And she used to be heavily involved in the culinary scene in San Diego. And she reaches out to me and she goes, hey, no one's heard from you in like a couple of years or like a few years or something. What's going on? Are you okay? And I was like, that's weird. I don't want to message her because obviously like I'm not okay and this is embarrassing and I don't want these people to know. I was a little missed to message her back but I did and somewhere in the process I just kind of spilled a lot of what was going on and she was like duh like everybody knew like everybody knew that you were going downhill and you were into drugs and everything and of course I didn't know they knew I thought I was keeping this big secret (laughs) um she was like how can I help you she goes as a matter of fact I'm calling and I told her I was homeless and that you know I just eaten out of Einstein bagels trash the other day you know I, I I told her the whole works probably a lot more than I meant to tell her but it just came out because I needed that release and she ordered me an uber and told me to come to her she was renting a little place in North Park and she was like come over here and you can stay here for a few days and and you know whatever I can help you with I can help you with so I did I went over there and the next day or maybe it was the second day after um she took me out to eat um right there in north park and just the sights and the smells and like remembering that this is what my life used to consist of this was that was my life and it would just it just and i was like i don't ever i had a nice life i ate really great food and i traveled really great places and i did really awesome things and last week i ate out of a trash can you know it just wasn't, I was like, this isn't me. This isn't who I am. So I made the decision to, I had another friend in LA who I was actually going to, she's a recovering heroin addict. Um, 
and I was going to go spend a few months with her up there. So I went back to La Mesa to my tent. I, I planned the rest of the week to spend, spend the time with my friend in North Park mm -hmm. and then get a train up to LA. On the way back to my tent, I walked through the yard or through the big field where my tent was and got into the tent. And the field was behind a school, like ways behind a school, but behind a school. And I never went in and out this tent during the day. Like, but I did it during the day. And somebody on the playground saw me do it, saw this weird homeless guy jump into a bush and disappear. Um, because my tent was hidden with all this tumbleweed and everything. It was really ingenious, actually. <laughs> um so the cop, all these cops showed up to investigate the weird guy that disappeared into a bush. I remember being in the tent, like really kind of freaking out. And I could, I, I could smell the guy, like the cop's cologne walking by my tent, but not being able to find me. That's how well hidden I was. And I was like, should I just turn myself in? It's like, oh. no, but I got these plans to go to LA and I'm gonna get my life together. And I was like, but I'm not really ready for that yet. Like I'm not you, you're sober during this time. I am I am like maybe three days sober. Okay, okay. So um maybe four. I don't know. I had to have a nap somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Um but I could smell the the cologne, like they were calling out, asking, you know, there's Mesa PD. And finally I was like, I'm just if I go to LA right now, like I am not emotionally even though I want to do this I'm not there mm -hmm. and I will I will be right back to where I'm at mm -hmm. so I jumped out of the tent scared the shit out of him um the cops were like oh where'd you come from and turned myself in so I turned myself in from the warrant that I've been running from for a long time mm -hmm. I went to the jail and apparently I had been in and out of jail so long and then I had been running from this warrant for so long that now my probation case had maxed out on his time. Mm -hmm. So I went, so when I saw my public defender, that's what he goes to tell me. And I'm like, but I need rehab. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, we can't give you rehab because what we're, what we're going to do is you're going to be in jail for, I think it was like nine days. And then we're going to release you because that's the end of your case. You've served enough jail time over it. Your probation has run out. Um, that's the end of it. No probation or nothing. I would just be out on my own. Wow. Um, and I'm like, but I need to go to rehab. I have no one, like I've never had a, a, a charge or a case that wasn't drug related. And you guys have never offered me rehab. And now here I am, I'm homeless, just a few days clean. And you guys are going to throw me right back out in the streets, which Wow. That really tells you how like messed up the system can be. Yes. I know that I know that there are jurisdictions. I know that there are cities and states that actually have like drug courts and rehab yeah. like in place that they can they can send people who just have drug offenses. But in your case, nope. So I've I, I think a lot of times um, and I think it's changing now to a certain degree, but a lot of times you kind of have to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, which I never did. I had noticed, I, I, first off, I didn't know a lot of that stuff existed. And second, I didn't want to do any of that. I, I'd never made it through probation. There's no way I'm going to make it through a drug court or through, you know, a rehab or anything like that at the time. But this time I knew I had no other option. You know, I was going to be dead. I was going to be dead or I was going to be homeless or, I mean, I already was homeless, but I, you know, this wasn't getting better for me. Yeah. Nothing. When I got, when, if I was getting back out in nine days, things aren't going to be better. They're going to continue to get worse because that's what's been happening. So. <laughs> things don't change or get better if you keep repeating the same mm -hmm. behavior. So you right. knew and, that. You knew and that. I wasn't out of my behavior yet. I was no, just a few days to be, clean yeah. and I had no resources. I had nowhere to live. I had nothing. Um, I didn't even have any belongings anymore because the cops had taken them all, you know, mm -hmm. my tent and everything else. Mm -hmm. So I explained to him a lot like I just did with you, but maybe with a little bit more passion. And they went and talked to the district attorney and they're like, well, okay, well, if you want this, we can recharge you with all your original crime and we will sentence you to three years, um, 
prison time, but with a suspended sentence, meaning I would do like a month and a half. And I think I did a month and a half in a county jail. And that way they can fund rehab for me. Oh, okay. So against all the other people that were all the other inmates that are with court, that I went to court with who are all like, no, dude, you're going to be off paper. Nothing's going to hold you back. Just tell them, no, you're going to be able to go home. You're stupid. But I knew I wanted this, you know, like, I was like, I don't care what, it, what you guys have to do. Even if it feels like a setup right now, mm -hmm. I'm going to take it because I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sentenced me to three years, a suspended sentence on AB 109B probation, which is the prison realignment act probation basically meaning I will do my time either in the county jail or a split sentence split sentence is what I did mm -hmm. um, or part of it on the outside under the condition that if I have any miss up any any I'm doing my full time in jail okay. um, and I would have done three years in a county jail not prison which would because um, it's a nonviolent crime so it would have been really terrible gotcha. So that's what I did. I spent a month and a half in county jail. By now, my mental state is like I'm pretty solid. Like I know this is what I want. Um, I spent my whole time ordering books like The Power Now and, you know, just other books that are really helping me find me and helping me find how I'm going to start approaching my life. And I went to the rehab and so I went to the VOA in national city and it was an absolute joke. Um, there was no treatment. There. there was no treatment there whatsoever. We didn't even have group sanction. We didn't even have groups where staff members facilitate them. We had an AA meeting in the morning from that. Someone came in off the streets and any meeting at night. And that was it. The rest of the time was spent with people sitting outside smoking cigarettes oftentimes shooting up when no one's looking we had a couple of overdoses there was drugs all over the place um Is but this it was a, a publicly found funded uh, it was a publicly funded rehab and one of the worst um and that's kind of why i picked it because i thought i could get out of it really quick oh. um so i thought i'll get through this really quick um and it had like a 30 day blackout, which means like after 30 days, I could go get a job and stuff. Mm. Um, however, I got really lucky. I got in there and I, I don't even remember how I was introduced to the maintenance guy. His name was Javier and Javier kind of, he liked me and he just pulled me under his wing. And like the second day I was there, I was off going to Home Depot with him so um, where everybody else. Guy. So you're connecting with the maintenance guy at the rehab center. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, and he was a really solid guy. Like he was in the recovery himself. He'd been there since the program had opened. I mean, pretty much, I don't know. Um, really nice guy. Um, turned out he also was really good friends with my probation officer. Oh. Um, they hit their kids played soccer together. Oh. So it was like this, I don't know what it was, but he kind of took me under his wing. He always was telling me IPO how I'm doing really good at the program. I didn't really have to do the program i just hung out with him oh. um i mean there wasn't much of a program there to begin with but i got to stay away from all the riffraff and all the other stuff that was going on um i met with my counselor once a month but other than that i did stuff with him until it was time for me to actually get a real job which i did and my life was slowly starting to get together um i got out of rehab I went to outpatient by now, like I am soaking up the information I'm learning in outpatient. Um, we're doing DBT and CBT. Um, and I'm just loving that. Just loving it. I make it through outpatient. No problem. Um, I go into sober living and I didn't like sober living too much because I felt kind of bougie. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, now, like I have some recovery time under my belt. Like I am actually really invested in it. Whereas some of you know, everybody is so invested in it. And, you know, I had a lot of people that in the sober livings who were just kind of trying to fulfill legal obligations or trying to skate under the radar and still get high. Um, I wasn't doing that. So my intention was to move out of sober living as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the meantime, I'm seeing my son every, you know, every weekend. I'm doing a lot of work on myself. I'm, I'm attending spiritual events and, and meeting other people with kind of similar beliefs as I was. So, so you feel like you've, you've gone through your walk bottom, you're coming out of it. You've gone through quote unquote rehab and you didn't want to do the sober living thing. You just wanted to get out, do your thing, live life. Right. Yep. And I, I did um, the sober living thing for a little bit, but okay. Yeah. Cause I was obligated for you. Yeah. I'm sure it can be helpful for some people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but for me, I was just, you know, like I didn't want to be around addicts anymore you know it was like I like I felt like I was kind of progressing and that's kind of when I left outpatient that's kind of what they told me they're like okay like it feels like this like you're past this you know so let's get you out of here okay um yeah and what I was doing is when I look back on it I was putting this part of my life behind me you know those were the beginning steps of just putting this behind me I was re-engaging with my relationship with my son. Not that we ever didn't have one through the addiction, but it wasn't, you know, as much as I thought in my head, I was the world's best father. I wasn't. Um, okay. Well, it's good that you got to, you know, uh, connect with your son and, and still see him through all of this. Um, and you said you had two other children. What about them? So they are back in Illinois and we actually had, um, I wasn't going, I didn't go to back to Illinois for years. Um, I was in the middle of an addiction. Yeah. You know, I couldn't right. do that. Um, we did talk. It wasn't as nearly as regularly as I would have hoped for. Um, but we did talk. They knew what was going on. You know, they knew what was going on. They weren't, they weren't young. I mean, they knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, I, at the same time, I, you know, I wasn't involved like I should have been. And that's something that's always that I've always had a lot of guilt about, you know, in the beginning, moving to California was about bettering my life. And it started out like that in the very beginning. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I wasn't being a very good father in Illinois either. Um, you know, finally when my addiction hit in California, I wasn't being a good father period. And I wasn't, so that's been a lot of guilt. Um, I've been able to, as my relationship with my two older kids has healed and worked through a lot of it i've been able to forgive myself with some of that um i don't think there's a lot of guilt i I still have trouble letting go of Mm -hmm. but i think i'm not sure if letting go is really what i need to do right now or if it's just you like i can still hold on to some of that guilt but still i was just thinking about this today i keep you know a lot of people say letting go letting go Mm -hmm. and i'm like but should you though? Because like, I, I think I was reminded somewhere today that you never really let go. Right. Yeah. Um, it's only that you're really making peace with it. And I, forgiveness is a huge piece of it. Forgiving others, forgiving yourself, you know, and, um, and I think uh, what I've forgiveness to others. I think what I've come to as a form of acceptance, instead of letting go of it or even completely forgiving myself, I have forgiven myself for a lot because honestly, I didn't know how to be a father. I wasn't, I didn't know how to be a human, you know? Um, and I understand that I just wasn't, there's no amount of you should be a good father that was going to make me a good father. Yeah. I love my relationship with my two older kids now. Like we actually have, my oldest daughter came out to me that she was by just a few months ago, way before she came out to her mom. Um, she came out to she flew out here to Oregon to visit over the summer. Um, Good. We have a really great relationship, and you know, I, and I get choked up thinking about it because it's like, like especially my oldest daughter, she's so understanding. Like her response to a lot of this stuff is like, "I understand, Dad. You know, like shit happens. Not everybody, you know, is able to." navigate life the same way like you're so wise yeah Yeah, she's seriously um she's she's a very smart kid she's actually a teacher she teaches um grade school children right now she's finishing up her master's so i'm so proud of her good (laughs) so anyway um i got out of sober living i actually had a friend who i met in refuge recovery i'm not sure are you familiar with refuge recovery Mm -hmm. 
Okay, refuge recovery and dharma recovery are recovery meetings that are based on Buddhist principles. Okay. okay. So I met her through refuge recovery. She worked at a residential facility in Golden Hill, and she said, hey, they need a cook um, at this residential facility, and it's you get your own apartment in the back. Ah. And I'm like, I'm all over that. I don't know if I really want to be a cook at a residential facility because I cook too good for this crap, <laughs> whatever. And I did it and I found my place. Like it, actually, and before that I was working at um, Father Joe's at you oh. know, St. Vincent in uh-huh. their kitchen. And yeah. I was actually helping, they have a culinary program and I was helping train oh. the clients that were going through that program. And I got a lot of joy out of that. Like, That's cool. Yeah. People that are like me and I'm working well, with them and yeah. I, I get to see them grow and it felt really good. All right. Well, that was part one of this wonderful in-depth conversation that I'm having with my friend Rob Snyder about the heavy topic of addiction and substance abuse and what he's gone through. And I thank him so much for being able to share it because I'm sure that there, you know, there were times where it was hard to share what he was sharing. And I'm very thankful that he was able to do that because it could be relatable for some of you out there. Um, But if anything, I hope that you'll find some value in this episode. And um, the coming episode is going to be about where he's at now and his journey going forward, which is so exciting. I'm super happy for him, as well as any resources, uh, insights, uh, suggestions, advice uh, for those who might be struggling with addiction, as well as those who might be tuning in who know somebody or has a loved one who's struggling with addiction and kind of like, you know, your place in it and how you can manage it and what you can do because um, sometimes it's just not easy to navigate that. Just, you know, you want to help, but you know, to what extent can you do it? And you don't want to hurt them and you don't want to be hurt. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot that somebody can go through. And so it's going to be a really good um, second part to this episode and be sure to tune in next week for that. Thank you again for being with me on the Healing Compass podcast today. Refer to the episode description for all of the links and information regarding my guest, as well as my link tree and how to get in touch with me. I'm your host, Lori Crow, a.k.a. Sway. Until next time, be the energy you want to attract. You're beautiful, you matter, and you have all that you need. Be well.